0: We're live. It is Wednesday, July 28th, 2021, 5.02 p.m. We are two minutes late because Genevieve and I got engrossed in a conversation with our guest. And, you know, rather than bringing you all into it, we just, uh, <laughs> you know, let time get away from us. I have a very important announcement today, um, which is that... Uh, I have not yet watched yesterday's show, and so I still do not know the full Christopher Argerus story, um, but uh, I want to uh, welcome Christopher back. I hear he is out of the hospital, is that right, Genevieve?
1: That is right, he got out yesterday.
0: And, uh, and uh, I saw that he was uh, uh, at least momentarily on the show yesterday, so welcome back. Uh, Christopher's ordeal is a reminder to you all that breakthrough infections happen, even if you've been completely virtuous and you're not one of the people that Jonathan Last wants to fire off into the sun, Uh, it is still a scary place out there, Uh, so be careful. And if you are one of the people who has not been vaccinated, The breakthrough infections are your fault, every single one of them. And so you know what to do, remedy that. We are still not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we are allowed to talk to JVL. And a lot of you know JVL. Um, Some of you don't. He is the editor of the Bulwark. He is uh, a cantankerous, um, uh, Genteelly misanthropic uh, gentleman who I just want to say um, uh, has been on a campaign against me on a number of podcasts, two in particular. Um, and uh, I just want to say it's time that we buried the hatchet, Jonathan. And um, and so welcome to In lieu of fun and and and. Please stop saying mean things about me on various (laughs) bulwark productions.
2: You know, I I feel like this is such a a wonderful moment of growth for both of us. Because in the green room is when we realize that the, the only thing that's come between us is that we have this one unobtainable woman who we both love. And we both want her to love us back. Uh, and not More than the she, other
0: one. <laughs> and
2: not not only does she not love us back, but she holds both of us in mild contempt. And uh, and so this <laughs> is great. This is like a little therapy session. Genevieve can help us work through our feelings here, and uh, I'm sure it'll all be it'll be really good for us. I'm I'm looking forward to a lot of I feel statements. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm just I want you to know that I'm in a receiving mode for whatever it is that you need to express, Benjamin.
0: Well, I I would like to express a few things. First of all, that I wish that you had invited me to hike the Appalachian Trail because I think a lot of this could have been avoided um, because I would love to hike the Appalachian Trail. And um, so that's the first thing uh and it hurt me that you didn't and that's really why the french village podcast exists well it Um, it
2: may come to that because (laughs) in my quest to find somebody to hike the damn thing with me uh i have gone through sarah longwell uh, my mother-in-law i've got a whole list of people Everybody has said no, so I mean eventually I'm gonna get to your name on my list.
0: Yeah, uh, which shows you how far down the list I'm below the mother in law on people you'd want to hike the appellation. Oh no, toilet. my mother in law's
2: the best. I can't even tell you. I the idea of getting to go to hike the A T with my mother in law is the the best. She's actually my one like A. If Sarah is my first my you know, first round draft pick for that, mother in law is, is one one B. She's Amazing,
1: that's pretty wow. awesome.
2: Yeah. Oh, she's the best. She is the best. I run a. I, I do a little hobby podcast that I keep like super double secret from everybody. And the episode <laughs> where I had her on, and the two of us like just sat there drinking together and unbelievable, It's just magic.
1: Now, does so. she hike normally, or is it just this particular no. trail?
2: Oh no, she's she's a quilter. She's she is not an outdoor cat, and in large part, that's why it would be so amazing. Uh, oh, wow. And I, uh, yeah, I I mean, it's, of course, all of this is fantasy. I've got like four four kids, two of whom are reasonably young, uh, but this is, it's aspirational. I want cool. to do an aspirational through hike.
1: Well, now, ben. Oh, please Ben, go no, ahead. no, go ahead. So what I was gonna say though is you could make it a reality though, if you broke it into parts because it, it's just the whole thing done at once or is that part of the allure?
2: <sighs> yeah, I am to be honest. So first of all, the idea of section hiking it uh, which seems like kind of okay. But, you know, reality is almost harder. And B, when I, I sat and thought it through, I realized that's like a 45-year project for me. You know, it's <laughs> at that point, you know, why not just quit your job for six months?
0: So so, so serious question, though. You're obsessed with Pelotons. Yeah. Peloton has a nice big screen. Mm. There's, somebody has to have videoed the Appalachian Trail from end to end, like Ooh. could you Peloton hike the Appalachian Trail?
2: Pretend you're biking the A T. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. I, I
0: mean, it's it's you know none of it is undoable on a mountain bike.
2: Peloton has a lot of uh, a lot of really nice nature trails, Genevieve. So you're into Peloton too? Yes, I
0: I do
1: like Peloton. I've I've been temporarily sidelined from it for the past couple of months, but I'm oh, planning no. on getting back in. Yeah.
2: What's wrong? What happened?
1: Nothing wrong. It's just that the things that I like to do are a little too high impact, and so I've got to wait.
2: Oh, um, yeah. did, did Jess King? Did she like yell at you? On
1: no, 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 no.
2: <laughs> Leanne Hainesby, Cody was like very cross with something you did. You high fived the wrong person.
1: I was too uh, cheerful. They just said, "You know, honey, there <laughs> there is a line between optimism and op- obnoxiousness, and you've crossed it."
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's funny. I so I. Just got the Peloton not that long ago, and it's amazing. It is everything that everybody says it is, and I have started branching out not only from the the bike part of it, but to the outdoor runs and to some of the meditation. And on a lark a few weeks ago, I tried uh, yoga, which is something that I would have mocked uh, even twelve months ago. Let alone like if you go back to me, you know, in, in my college days when I was a varsity rower. Uh, and said, like, you know, I was in this amazing shape and, you know, I could I could wake up at three in the morning and just like, go run seven miles and come home and go back to sleep mm-hmm. and said, yeah, someday you're going to be so old and broken that you're going to just they all feel like doing yoga for 30 minutes is your speed. I'd have been like, kill me, kill me <laughs> now. Instead, I love it. I wind up feeling like both calm and relaxed, but also grounded. And it's great. So now yoga is all I want to do.
0: Now, so explain to me about yoga. Does yoga, how does yoga interact with your other spiritual commitments?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. I get the sense that in yoga, you're not encouraged to hate the whole world around you. And so that's that's hard. I have to turn that off when I'm on the mat. So when I'm working on my practice, as we say, yes. uh, you know, I really... I have to put aside a lot of the day-to-day concerns that I carry with me about how terrible people are and about how we're all doomed and everything is futile. Uh, and so, and maybe that's good for me. Maybe it's good to you know flip the telescope around and look at it through the other end. I don't. I don't know. So, do you? Do you do? Are you? Do you also Namaste?
3: Jeremy? I do
0: not. I I have spent a lot of time over the last fifteen years doing martial arts. Um, uh, but I've never done yoga seriously. I've, I've done Aikido and, and Taekwondo, um, but... So that's the opposite
2: of yoga. That's the practice of trying to hurt other people.
0: Well, but they're, they're much more closely related than you would expect. Um, uh, focus on things like flexibility, um, groundedness um, uh, can be very similar. And I think Aikido in particular is... A kind of walking combat yoga, um, and um, uh, I think of it as it's as close to yoga as I get. And I do think, you know, uh, uh, the combination of sort of yoga with hurling people to the ground is um, uh, uh, kind of appeals to me.
2: Yeah, I can see that. I. You know a lot of it is i i have been my my oldest kid just turned 13 and you know I, I don't know if you guys have kids or not it's you know you always expect like oh yeah sure you know well this is what the cycle of life right uh you know your child will outstrip you athletically i didn't expect it to happen so early <laughs> and by age 12 like i could no longer take him out for a run with me oh, like wow. he was he was just too fast and you know he's He's wanting to do like six thirty miles, and I'm like, dude, I'm gonna die. I couldn't do that thirty <laughs> mile with a skateboard. You, and
1: uh, you can yeah. alternate the training though, and like set up some kind of rig where he's pulling you for the second half of the run.
2: Yeah, maybe if he's, like, you know, <laughs> he's a speed parachute. He works yeah. out with sometimes. Like yeah. maybe make him run the whole thing with the parachute on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of a, a lot of things where stuff I used to do with my oldest kid I can't do with him anymore. And so now I have to go and find things that he finds so contemptible that I know I won't have to bring it. Because when I'm like, "Hey, I'm gonna go do some yoga. Want to come with me?" Flash. He rolls his eyes like, "Yeah." Well, I
0: have one. I have one for you. If you yeah. if you if you're into yoga and you're into the Peloton, you should spend a few hundred bucks. It's the best piece of exercise equipment you will ever acquire. Is an Oculus Quest, and download. The program Supernatural, as well as a boxing simulator uh, called Fit XR, they are fabulous. That's cool. Truly fabulous uh, uh, cardio systems, um, and they are otherworld, literally kind of otherworldly in their immersive qualities, and um, they don't invite uh strangers into your house to yell at you
2: <laughs> yeah
0: so you you are an oculus guy uh for exercise reasons only yes I, really? I i bought one thinking i was as i explained to kate uh was interested it was the beginning of uh of uh uh, uh lockdown i was gonna for the first time in my life get into gaming um and uh, I thought, you know, I've never really been into video games. This is a, I'm shut down in my house. Everybody else is, you know, pretending to read. I'm not even going to pretend. <laughs> I'm just going to get into video games. And all I want to do with it is work out. Um, Wait, so you didn't do video
2: games when you were a kid? Because you and I are reasonably close in age. And so you were the prime Super Nintendo, you know, original NES system.
0: So I'm a little older than you, I think. Um, really? I'm, f- I'm 51.
2: We're, we're like four years apart. We're oh, okay. so we're basically the same age. So, so you had been like ColecoVision Vision and the Atari yeah, 2600. Yeah.
0: So there were definitely a t- like, and I was in middle school, definitely into that stuff. Yeah. You and went then, to the
2: arcade at the mall with Jeff Spicoli, yes, right? Yes.
0: And then yeah. by the time I was in high school, I lost interest and um, didn't do it anymore and really have not, other than Tetris, played a video game since. Um, uh, and, um, and so, you know, but I was kind of interested in, in Oculus because, you know, 3D uh, immersive stuff. Um, but on a lark, on the first couple days that I had it, I looked up uh, the workout stuff and that is now all I use it for. It's like the best piece of exercise equipment I've ever used.
2: That is fascinating. I, you That's know,
0: a high praise.
2: Yeah. You had me when you, had, when you said just spend a couple hundred bucks, because I'm, I'm such a consumerist. I try to fill the hole in my heart by, by buying things. And so I was like, whatever, whatever's coming after this, I'm in. So I'm down for it.
0: I actually think we should have uh, on the show, Genevieve, the people who do who designed and run Supernatural—that um, uh, um, would be cool. I I think it's the most fascinating. Um, so the, what it does is it you you uh, it transports you to uh, some of the most you know gorgeous places in the world. You know, tops of mountains, the right above a you know smoking. Uh, uh, crater of a volcano. And these are rendered incredibly vividly in 360 degrees. And then things start flying at you and you have baseball bats in your hand and you have to hit them. Uh, and it is uh, done to music. Um, it is um, incredibly transportive. You really feel like you are standing on a platform on, you know, on top of a lagoon in Borneo or something. And Whoa. Um, and depending on how you set the levels, the energy expenditure is really high. Um, and I just think it's, it's super imaginative and super interesting and great fun. I feel like ben, I would like much- that a lot
2: how much would I have to pay you to go put those goggles on right now so we can watch you playing?
0: Uh, So the answer is you wouldn't have to pay me anything. I would be happy to do it, but we shouldn't do it now because, um, but instead what I will do is I will, uh, 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 I will record a a video of myself doing it. So you can see how goofy I look doing it. And B, I will record from the Oculus what I am seeing. And I will uh, share them both with you.
2: Good, because I want to promise you that after Sarah sees you playing on the (laughs) Oculus, I'll win. Uh,
0: I actually don't think so, because I think that that she's so
2: anti-video game type stuff. (laughs) She's like, oh, you boys with your video
3: games.
1: This isn't really like a video game video game, though. It's it's an immersive experience.
3: (laughs) I I just want you to
1: do it. I I do. It it honestly sounds a lot like hockey being a hockey goalie, which I did for a long time. So that sounds like fun.
0: (laughs) Ice hockey or field hockey? Ice. Excellent. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
0: Yeah. So, uh, Mr. Last, let's uh, let's talk about. A uh, few things that I think the audience has wanted to know for a long time that you never have explained. Okay. The V. Is it Victor? It is. Okay, just checking. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I have
2: it for the the only reasons I have it is because growing up I idolized George Will as a writer, and when I you know got my first byline at the Weekly Standard and they you know like, so what what should it be and I was just like. If George F. Will, <laughs> if having a middle initial in your name is good enough for, for George F. and Will, then it's good enough for me. And I remember Fred Barnes saying, no middle initials, they're terrible. She knew you be John, it should be John, John last. I said, no, I, I can't do that. I've never been John in my life. And I stuck to my guns with the V and I don't know if it was a mistake or not because, you know, then we went into the world of search algorithms and I don't know if it, the SEO on having a middle initial is good or bad in your
0: byline. So I don't have a middle initial at all. And I, I, I am just Benjamin Wittes and I, um, I am, uh, have to say it is a nice combination to have no middle initial and to be the only Benjamin Wittes. So like it's nice. There's a, you know, like I think Kate has the same thing. There aren't any other Kate Clonex, you know, bylining around. Um, but it's it's good cuz nobody searches for me and gets anybody else.
2: Yeah, you're you're how about you Jennifer? Do you have a do you have a middle name?
0: I do have a
1: middle name, but I have no bylines. So this concern is not Present in my world. <laughs> uh,
2: well, we, let's share with the room anyway. What is your middle name?
1: It would be Genevieve A. Delafara Anne. Oh, Anne. Yes.
2: With an E or no E?
1: No E. Surprisingly. Yeah, I think they gave. They were like, we've given you enough vowels in your first name that after this, <laughs> you've used
0: <laughs> up all your E's. It,
1: exactly. It's too expensive if you ever have to go on a game show to buy all these vowels. <laughs> That's
0: so outstanding. I, so. Next question, somewhat serious. Um, you are kind of the commie left of the of the bulwark crowd, mm, and yes, I am interested in that as a as a as a sort of psychological and intellectual experience. Like the bulwark crowd, I think can be divided into. Um, Roughly speaking, into principled conservatives who took the conservatism seriously and didn't get tempted by the 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 allure of Trump, such as it was. Um, moderates who are essentially rethinking some aspects of conservatism, Uh, in a Charlie Sykes-like way, were we wrong about X, Y, and Z, Um, and who were kind of, to one degree or another, drifting away from conservatism, but aren't interested in sort of signing up Max Boot-like with the other side. And you. And you seem to me to be in your own category, which is somebody who was never really comfortable with conservatism, but kind of hung out in that world anyway, principally for social conservative reasons without kind and kind of cultural reasons without a commitment to any of the things that we think of as making up the modern conservative movement. And so I'm interested in your sort of psychodrama of like how you ended up like, what's a nice boy like you doing in a crowd like that? And why did you not, when when you were, like, started wanting to fire Republicans into the sun in rocket ships and became as angry and disillusioned as you are, why did you just not walk away? What's, what's the part that holds you to that... Uh, Uh, To the renegade part of that movement, uh, despite you're not really ever quite having been part of the movement at all.
2: That's an expansive question. Yes. Uh, So I mean, here's so I I am you know a bundle of contradictions. Not least of which is that I wouldn't be doing any of this had I just gotten into medical school. So, uh, you know, had I gotten into medical school, we could have saved everybody a lot of trouble, and I would be uh, an internist up at like you know Monmouth County Hospital in Central New Jersey, and hopefully, I would not have killed anybody because my organic chemistry grades were too low, and uh, you know, and it would be fine. I'd be, I'd, I'd almost certainly be married to the same woman. You know, we'd have the same kids. We, we literally would just have our life be different. I wouldn't be in this stuff, and I would. All I would do is be reading some of this stuff on the side between dragging my kid around to baseball practice. Uh, the, the weirdness of, I was always interested in politics. You know, I, I read the New York Times when I was uh, you know, a seventh grader because I was just interested in the world around us. Uh, loved, loved, loved. I saw some of the comments making fun of me for liking George Will. Um, I think George Will is the great essayist of our time. The guy can do anything. He can write about baseball, he can write about his kid, he can write about politics, he can write about rock he, concerts. I remember him going like writing a column about going to a Bruce Springsteen concert in the late He's 1970s. also
0: a wonderfully sweet man, and uh, I have a great meeting George Will story, um, uh, which I will share later in the show um, after you're finished
2: uh so anyway but, but I would say to the part to the point that i 'm conservative i 've always been temperamentally conservative though, which is believing essentially that however however bad things might look right now, this is as good as it gets, hmm. and you know tomorrow's going to be worse, and uh we you know, forget about trying to make the world better. We got to just hold on to what we've got right now because uh, things are likely to devolve and get much worse in the future uh, because people are awful and we need institutions and civilization to try to temper the, the bad effects of people. And so, that, I mean, that is a fundamentally conservative view of the world around us in life, even if it's not super politically conservative in the way that we think about modern conservatism. And so I, you know, I had that, but that was operating at the same time in my head as always a very deep suspicion of capitalism. Mm. You know, I was I was always very much. Now I'm not I'm not actually a commie. We we joke about this at the standard. Um, we joke about the bulwark. I the joke of the standard was that I was the house commie, um, <laughs> but I was much closer to Irving Kristol. I was a you know two maybe like a one and a half cheers for, for capitalism guy because I think that you. You have to be able to both recognize that capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than any other system in the world; has uh, achieved an enormous amount of good, but also that left undirected and unguided can wind up being getting into some really bad outcomes. And so, I, you know, long before we had like nationalist populism, I was always on the side of, yeah, actually, you know, maybe we ought to pay attention to what's going on over here because when. Big corporations capture the power of the state. Uh, then, you know, the truth is they would murder your grandmother if it got them five extra cents worth of profit this year, and they thought they could get away with it.
1: It all sounds very Hobbesian and it goes back to the suspicion of things operating without controls. So it makes
2: sense. Yeah, right. I yeah. mean, you can see it. I guess there's a. Through, it may not be right, but there's a through line to it. Um, but you know, the the truth is a big part of the attraction for me to the conservative world even though i wasn't a part of it like i was sort of in but not of um was just the back in the day and maybe i'm wrong about this but it seems to me that that's where all of the really smart really interesting people were that's where andy ferguson was that's where george will was Uh, that's where bill crystal was and these were people who were a enormously smart b almost always operating in good faith Uh, and see were like extravagantly talented. You know, like I would read Andy Ferguson, you know, wherever, again, whether it was The Spectator or in The Atlantic or in Time Magazine. And I would just be like, I want that. That's what I want to belong to. You know, these are people who are just great writerly talents. Uh, And the standard back then, I really think that, again, I'm a lover of political magazines. I read all of them and I I love them all. You know, I love The New Republic. I, I love The Atlantic, I love Mother Jones um love the new yorker
0: and you loved the claremont review of books
2: god i love the claremont review of books but uh especially early on when it was like david brooks chris caldwell uh tucker carlson matt labash david tell those early years of the standard i think was as good as it gets for any weekly political magazine of the last 50 or 60 years. I
0: could not agree more. Um, And, you know, for those who gasped when you said Tucker Carlson, not the same person as he was as a young writer. Um, and, um, And nobody, nobody, and I say this as somebody who wrote editorials for the Washington Post for 10 years, has written editorials like David Tell has before or since yeah um and uh those there was an energy an amazing energy there um all right i want to tell you a story uh to validate your sense of george Will. tell me and then i'll tell you question.
2: my George Will stories which are hysterical so, so go ahead uh, yours will be good
0: mine was i was 27 meg greenfield had just hired me to write editorials for the washington post which had a historic position against the death penalty with which I agreed completely, I have always been varying degrees of passionately against the death penalty, and there was this one little, there was this one little problem which was that Ted Kaczynski had uh, just pled guilty, and boy, is it hard to make the case against the death penalty for Ted Kaczynski, particularly after some of the people. Um, uh, uh, testified whose arms he had blown off, and it was like bad stuff, you know. And uh, so I gamely wrote the editorial for the wall, with, with which I believed, the, in which I believed then and believe now, wrote the editorial against the death penalty for Ted Kaczynski. And George Will wrote a column in response, um, which began with the line, the Washington Post has come out against the death penalty for Ted Kaczynski, dash, dash, the least the paper could do for one of its writers, um, <laughs> which, for those of you who don't remember, uh, the Washington Post had published, along with the New York Times, at the request of the FBI, the Unabomber's manifesto. <laughs> and so um, the, the, this was a savage column. Um, and I felt it very directed at me, um, and, <laughs> um, which it was. Uh, no, and I had never met George Will before, but I was sort of in hiding under my desk mode in response to this column. Meg was very amused. And a few weeks later, I was uh, invited Uh, by the then publisher of the Washington Post, Bo Jones, to a book party that he was uh, holding for uh, uh, Carl Cannon. And and I went to the book party and who should be standing there but uh, George Will, who um, I was introduced to and I couldn't, you know, sink into my seat. And I was introduced to him and somehow it came up. Uh, Oh, I I told him that I was doing the legal affairs editorials and he looked at me pointedly and said, did you write that editorial about Ted Kaczynski? (laughs) And I said, yes. And he said, that was a very good editorial. And I was really taken aback and I said, you wrote quite a a savage column in response to it. He said, of course I did. You don't need to write a sharp column in response to a lousy editorial. And uh, he could not have been more gracious and um, was, um, uh, I I think of him in the department of a pleasure to disagree with um, and, and I have gone back to that column a number of times and actually noticed that there was not a personal word in it. It was sharp uh, and it never questioned anybody's good faith except in the uh, uh, department of that first line, which was a I think a rhetorical excess that nobody could begrudge him. Uh, so I am very pro-George Will.
2: That is awesome. It's fantastic. I, So I avoided him for twenty years because I held him in such I mean like childishly high regard that the prospect of meeting him and turning and like finding out that he was a jerk like it it terrified me. It would be like losing my religion. And so I went to almost comical lengths to avoid meeting him because you know it's a small town, right? And so it was like three's company level like you know, Jack ducking out while Suzanne Summers is distracting Mr. Farley type stuff to, to not meet George Will and
0: especially in conservative writer world, I mean that's yeah what Will is right. So I mean it's
2: not a big it's not a big not a big city and uh, so I, I finally meet him in 2016 and I'm seated next to him at a lunch. And I, I don't talk to him the whole time. Well, all lunch. Like I just, you know, talk to whoever's on the other side of me instead. And you know, I'm just like, I'm gonna get through this. I'm gonna get through this. I'm not gonna talk to him. I'm not gonna, you know, don't wanna want to keep him pristine in my. And then I finally wind up. You know, he introduces himself to me at the end of the end of lunch, and I was like a 15 year old girl meeting the Beatles. It was one of the worst. I like. I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> but it this ends thirty seconds after meeting him with me like saying, like, excusing myself and running out the door. And uh, he then, this is, this is literally the coolest thing that has ever happened to me in Washington. A couple of years after that, he liked something I had written about my my minor league baseball team down here in Northern Virginia. And he sent me a copy of uh, men at Work, his book about baseball uh and he signed it made it out to my kid who's who's a huge baseball nut which was amazing and he invited me to come to a game with him and i showed up i show up to to a nationals game and it is me george will and george's other friend hall of famer tony la Russa. <laughs> <laughs> so like oh i sit down and he's like here's my friend tony i'm sure you recognize him and i was like hi mr you know like <laughs> what is happening here and this is, this is the single greatest indictment of Washington, D.C. ever. So all through the game, people kept coming up to us and asking Tony La Russa to take pictures of them with George Will. Not a single person recognized. The guy who is, you know, a Hall of Famer, he's wearing two World Series rings, They're like one on each hand. These things are, you know, like 80 carats each or something, They're like the whole diamond. And these people recognize the Washington Post op-ed columnist and not the World Series champ legend from baseball. And I just thought that tells you everything you need to know about Washington, D.C.
0: Wow. Um, All right, (laughs) let's go to audience questions. Paula, with a bug in your room, the floor is yours.
4: It's awful. There's like a centipede and a spider and I I wanna run out the room. Be free. Um, mm -mm. Um, So my question is, is what are your thoughts on, I guess, being efficient with communication versus being blunt, especially on controversial issues? And I'll give an example with vaccines. We could say, I mean, you could say we could be as obvious as we wanna say. There is really no basis for thinking that Bill Gates is gonna put a chip in your arm and we can call out a lot of the misinformation and stupidity, but then I wonder when it's an issue like you know, getting vaccines into people's arms. The cost of that versus you know going to you know local radio stations, getting people like Mitch McConnell to go out to his community. I think he just bought a lot of ads in um, his state to get that message out to people. Um, how do you balance that while being blunt and efficient at the same time? I know there's a difference, right? I think like the bulwark probably has a different audience than like NBC News. Um, so, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Who's the you're in that mine or, or the Rex? Right?
0: Yep. all all use are directed to you.
2: Oh, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean. When I think about this, when I'm being flipped, you know, I say things like, you know, I'm on the side of Darwinism, or I like personal responsibility, and people should get the joy of experiencing the consequences of their decisions, but uh, but I I, I do, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that talking about the unvaccinated you know, creates a monolith where there is not one, right? I mean, you, you can break out the crosstabs on here and find very different motivations across groups. and generally i think most of our efforts should be targeted towards the persuadables in the people who are in the group especially the people who because this is you know like 10 percent of the group is people who wanted to get the vaccine but just haven't found time to do it yet right or they haven't been able to get the range child care or range time off from work or because they're worried that if they get sick from the vaccine they're not going to be able to get uh two days off of work while they recover from it right if they have a reaction to it so I, I am very much in favor of trying to reach those people, but the truth of it is that people who are doing it for ideological reasons is the lion's share of this population, and not only do I think that they can't be reached, I'm not so sure we should expend all that much in terms of resources in trying to reach them.
0: Yeah, I can. I, I mean, I don't think the idea of, at some point, the idea of persuasion has diminishing marginal returns. When you have people who believe that Bill Gates is injecting microchips, the amount of persuasion that has to get go on for you to get from there to sure, jab me in the arm, is so high that I'm... Just not sure why the right answer isn't a little bit more coercive than that, like if you want to get on an airplane if you want to you know come into this mall if you want to like so I,
2: this is something I worry about a lot actually so when i I you know people are this is starting to some be something you see now a lot of uh, you know I think from wrote about this in the Atlantic last week. The idea that we you know, ought to be doing more, more sticks now that we've tried carrots. And I'm open to that idea. I am deeply concerned about the politics of that, though. And it, I would want to see an awful lot of polling on that. And the idea of creating a salient political issue within the minority of the country, which is doing this behavior. And helping to drive turnout for them and create wedges that help them and hurt the sort of pro-democracy side of the argument. Uh, at some point, I become very concerned about about the actual. And, and it's a little bit gross to say this, but I am concerned about the politics of the issue. And if it turns out that uh, vaccine mandates or you know, whatever, however you want to solve, you know, right, you know, whatever the version of it is, a political loser. Uh, then I would not want to spend any political capital on that.
1: Which is understandable. but there's also a third actor in this equation, and that's private companies and corporations. and maybe we should be incentivizing them to be the holder
0: of the. Yeah it yeah. seems to me that the administration has been pretty clever about this, that they say, oh, we're not imposing any federal vaccine mandates except at you know, at VA hospitals for healthcare workers. Right. Um, we're not doing that, but you know, if state and local governments and private companies want to do it, we, you know, take it up with them. And so there's no, there's no locus for the political anger as an electoral issue. It's highly diffused throughout a bunch of political actors. Yeah.
2: And like I said, if the polling on this is fine, cause you know, it ought to be fine. Right. I mean, we look at we're at 60% of the country with, uh, I think, coming up with 60% of the country with at least one dose. And you know, we're really talking about 30%. Um, and of those 30%, it's probably only 60% who are doing it for ideological reasons. Uh, but on the other hand, coming up on midterm elections, which are really weird. And you know, we're highly polarized, we're segregated, by all the, all the you know, coming apart Bill Bishop stuff that everybody knows about. So it, it worries me and I don't take any of that for granted.
0: Daniel, you're not in your chair, you're not blending in with your habitat, but the floor is yours.
3: Um, I suppose I have two questions. One, are you surprised that Fox News has not been held legally liable for their misinformation about vaccines? And the second, where is the, uh, where does the analogy between um, the crazy conspiracy theories about voting machines and Fox News being held liable, and then their misinformation about vaccines, and we don't see the companies like Pfizer going after Fox News for that type of misinformation?
0: When you say libel, do you mean? Uh, uh- like legally, uh, uh, accountable for, for, for libeling somebody, or do you mean, uh, some other kind of liability?
3: I'm primarily talking about any form of legal liability in which a person could bring a suit for say damages as a result of the misinformation uh, about the vaccine or companies bringing a suit because Fox News is recklessly lying about their product
0: yeah so I think I can answer this I mean the answer is that there's no um the the first amendment is a mighty mighty product liability uh standard and um uh you have to work really hard to violate it as a news organization, uh, to to breach it. The companies uh, almost certainly did so with respect to Dominion voting systems because they, and and others, because they actually imputed conspiracy to them. Um, uh, To raise questions about, even uh, recklessly about, the integrity of a vaccine or whether you would want to do it it, whether you would want to take it is not going to get you anywhere near lines of liability uh, unless you accuse an entity or a person of doing something that is you know factually false and Mm -hmm. that you could be reckless in reckless disregard of the truth about and so I don't think they have uh, li- you know, legal liability concerns about it, I think, as a defamation matter. Um, and I can't think of another liability standard, another basis for liability, merely that they reported bad information that caused you to not get vaccinated and you died as a result is not... Uh, is not ever going to get them close to uh to liability
1: just a a little caveat on this there have been some articles that have been exploring like the tort liability that could come from the detrimental reliance on that misinformation and so civilly perhaps but i agree with ben that the bar would be extremely high to prove that it was that speaker and that information that caused that person to not get vaccinated
0: yeah, and just for those of you who are mentioning wrongful death actions in the, uh, in the chat, uh, there have been a few of you, uh, uh, giving somebody information that causes, publishing information that causes people to make bad choices is not a plausible basis for a wrongful death suit, uh, full stop. Um, uh, um, Mr. Ducks with Pants, uh, the floor is yours. <clears throat>
3: Hello. Um, well, It's an honor to meet uh, Mr. J.V. Last, who is a character from the Bulwark Extended Universe who I primarily know through third-party sources, uh, including the French Village podcast. And uh, my question is whether or not uh, Jonathan has actually watched any of a French Village, or he simply monitors the podcast, or Sarah saying anything that is too kind about Ben?
2: Now, I, you know, so I... Sarah and I have gone around on this over and over and over. I just can't. I mean, A, I don't have the time. You know, my kids are young. I don't have the time to do series TV. Uh, you know, I, I was able to fit Ted Lasso in, and it was a, an enormous like undertaking for me. And those are 13, 22 minute episodes. Uh, and it like, I felt that. Um, but B, I just, I, I've just lived the French village. I, I can't have more doom and gloom in my life. I, I, don't, I don't want that stuff in my eyeballs. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot to be learned from it, but I, I'm just not in a place in my life where I have enough spare optimism lying around that I could slog through 115 hours of watching the worst of humanity in a fictionalized environment.
0: There, there is much wisdom in this, I have to say. Some of my uh, worst 45 minutes of the last uh, four months have been spent uh, watching fictitious French Jews being uh, uh, rounded up and uh, put in train cars. Um, Dan Welch, on that cheerful note, the floor is yours.
3: JVL, we've learned so much about you today. Your <laughs> Early rowing uh, uh, career, you're... Father, your uh, uh, your in view uh, articulated, but what we really want to know: what is Sarah Longwell really like? She, uh, you know, so
2: Sarah is hard on the outside, soft and chewy on the inside, and she is there you know, people are always like this, right? They're a little dichotomy. They might be soft on the outside and hard on the inside. I myself am hard on both the outside and the inside. Um, but Sarah has like this heart of gold in her and uh, she does not listen to the show. So I can say this and you guys won't think I'm buttering up. I think she's one of the finest human beings I've ever met. And she, like her, her optimism is really a Ted Lasso-like optimism. Like it's real, it's not a shtick, it's not a put on, it's not uh, like, it's just who she is. And she wants to see the best in people. She wants to really see people because that's Ted Lasso's superpower, right? Is that he can really see people, you know? He doesn't look past them or look through them. And Sarah does that too. And I I feel like the world would be better if she could be a senator or uh, or president or emperor of the earth or something, um, are, are either of you guys good place watchers?
0: Nope, no. no,
2: not the. Did, did Genevieve? Did you do Good Place? Yeah. I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. So anybody in the chat who has seen uh, has seen Good Place, I'm telling you that I just ordered for her today the Eleanor Shellstrap Best Person sash. <laughs> yes. Because. So I've I have ordered a from Etsy. I've found somebody on Etsy who makes these, and uh, I'm getting Sarah the you know the best. I am the best person. It says so on the sash thing. I'm going to send to her because she's the best. She's the best.
0: Can I can I venture a simple Sarah Longwell proposition that I, I think you will agree with? Sure. She is exactly the way she presents when she's on the secret podcast or any of the bulwark podcasts or on this show or on the french village there's no private versus public sarah longwell she's exactly who she seems to be
2: yeah i think that's right she's maybe a little more cautious and you know when she's doing a media of some sort right when there's some sort of mediating uh thing between her and people she might be a little more cautious in Like, just reveal, you know, opening up, right? And revealing, you know, what she, you know, who she really is and all that. Sure.
0: I mean, I I think there's a lot of that's true of most people. I just mean that there's not, there's like some people who they have a public persona and then there's who they really are. And those are quite different, uh, either for better or for worse. Um, Sarah is just Sarah. I mean, she's like, she's one of the reasons people like her so much on this show is that she comes across as super real. And, uh, and that's cause she is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just sort of, I fell for her instantly. And, you know, when I, when I first met her is like, things were going bad standard and I was, uh, casting about for resources to try to find jobs for the, the people on my team over there. And I just, yeah, you know, just one of these people where five minutes into a phone conversation where I was asking her for help finding jobs for a bunch of 25-year-olds, uh, I just thought, I love this woman. She's amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I met her also under ugly circumstances and uh, uh, not not that kind of ugly, but um, a different kind of ugly. And she she is... Among other things, you know, when the history of this period is written, and there really is a like one person who grabbed the the attractive remains of the conservative movement by the scruff of its neck and reorganized it, and that is Sarah, and um, you know, um, she's uh, you know that is no small accomplishment. And there's public sides of that and non-public sides of it and sides that you know, people may never learn about. Um, but one of the reasons she could do that is that she's a magnetic human being. And you know whether, whether you met her in the context in which you did or the context in which I did, there's just something that comes across very, very quickly that way.
2: Yeah, she's uh, she's great, and I, you know, I, I always joke with her that I mean the world needs both both kinds of people. It needs it needs people like me, and it needs Sarah Longwell, but it needs the Sarah Longwells to be in charge. <laughs> um, like people like me shouldn't be in charge of anything. Like we you are be the
0: em- the eminence Grease whispering. Uh, 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 I don't know how to say it in. Um, you you whispering the evil inclination into her into her ear.
2: Yeah, I mean she's she's Jedediah Bartlett and I'm Toby, I guess right or, or you know I would be if I could get her to run for president. <laughs> That's amazing. I would be her Toby.
0: Eve, the floor is yours. Hi, hey. uh, uh, my question is: What are your thoughts about um, centrism
4: as a political stance slash ideology? you both seems to be guys are kind of centrist i don't know
2: boy i don't know i mean I, again i always assume the worst is about to happen here's you know if you, if you want to understand we you know we joke at the the bulwark all the time because um, i you know i will pop into in our slack and i'll be like hey look at this thing just happened jvl is always right and uh in
0: and you know, it's people, always a bad thing that just happens, right? Well,
2: some people, you know, I will periodically get people, you know, who email all these things come from me readers who are like, you know, "Look at this thing! How did you know?" And I say it's e- it's easy. In any given situation, I look at it and I think, "What's the worst possible thing that could happen next?" And then I say, "That's what's going to happen," and I'm right, <laughs> like ninety five percent of the time. And so i I begin by you know, a lot of the pungent fallacy is always to look at the world, think about what you would like to see happen, and then to build a framework for how what you want will happen, right? And I sort of do the opposite. I look at the world, I think about what I would like to see happen, then I try to come up with the reasons why it won't. And that's basically where I am with centrism. I I think we have, uh, our system is set up with so much leverage on one side for the minority party, Uh, Between the and this is something that's a reasonably new view for me. I did not, you know, I've I've been reading this critique from people like Ezra Klein for, you know, 10 years and didn't quite buy it, and and now I really do. That between uh, gerrymandering the Electoral College and the Senate, uh, we really have stacked the deck on one side and empowered a minority, and that the net effect of that is to give that minority the freedom to range further out to the polls and i don't know that the that the opposite reaction to that is necessarily to create a centrist coalition Yeah, uh, maybe it would be right you maybe you could say look if you just get 54 percent of the country you know on the side of reasonable uh you know center-left policies then you know you could reign supreme for a generation but i don't know that that's really where we're headed uh it would be nice but uh, we can't have nice things.
0: Drew Rickett, I cannot bring you on screen, but your, your uh, mic is on and the floor is yours.
3: Yes, I'm a disembodied voice as usual. So JVL, you wrote an, an article in the immediate aftermath of 1-6 questioning whether or not the uh, insurrection was an epilogue or a prologue of Trumpism. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts six months on or are you reserving that for a forthcoming article?
2: Uh, no, you know, I, I have to go back and look at it, but I'm pretty sure that was one of those leading questions where I, I, I knew what it was. And I, th- I thought it was prologue, and I still believe it's prologue. And it, I think it's, it's even worse than I had thought at the time, because what we, we really do have now. A party which is moving toward a full embrace of political violence. You know, right now it's it's not true like that. The entire Republican Party embraces the idea of political violence. It is only filling the percent, right? And maybe that percent is five percent. Maybe it's fifty percent. I don't know. Uh, but that 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 minority is gaining purchase, and more than that, there is no, there are no forces within the party who are interested in pushing back against them. Yeah, uh, and. Once that happens, I mean, Katie, bar the door, right? These things, this is my, my central argument from the very beginning of Trumpism, you know, has always been something that I believed, really going, going back to 9-11, is that this thing of ours, you know, this thing being our nice little Western liberal construct in which we try to protect everybody's dignity and freedom, we try to protect both the rights of the minority and the majority, this thing that we take as given is much more fragile than we think. And you know, you just start tapping on this stuff a little bit and it can crack, and those cracks don't look like they're that important uh, until all of a sudden everything collapses. And I have I have been basically of that view since 9-11 and I've become increasingly of that view over the last five or six years too.
0: Oh, Amen. Uh, Mateo, you get the last question. Uh, I suggest you have so many in there but I suggest the the sporting one is the one it's the money question of the day
3: no I think it's the one we all want to see and so my question is yeah I want want to hear from all of you on this Uh, what is the most impressive athletic feat that you could do today if you had to
0: Genevieve get us started
1: that I could personally perform
0: yes not oh. you know uh, let's just say under normal conditions.
1: Thank you. Um, I am an excellent swimmer and I am very good at the butterfly stroke, so I feel like I would beat a lot of people in a butterfly race. <laughs>
2: uh, I I play I play a lot of catch with my oldest kid and, and have been since he was about five years old. So I can throw a baseball, Better than most middle-aged guys, just because I I still do it a lot. So I uh, you know I don't I don't have the the velocity of my kid. My kid's 13, and his fastball is 76, 77 miles an hour, um, which is insane and terrifying. When we go out to play catch now, if it starts getting like dusk, I have to stop us because if the light isn't perfect and I miss it, he's going to break my face with the with the ball. But uh, I can still I can still throw from short to first.
0: Um, I can uh, break five boards uh, uh, stacked on top of each other. And uh, until... Uh, and Jack Goldsmith once even posted a picture on Lawfare of it, um, because, but it does, It looks like the picture no, is no longer available on the, uh, the, the site um uh, i'll have to go find out what happened to that picture um but yeah somebody snapped a picture of me going through five okay. boards uh, but full-on chuck norris style uh, it was a palm strike yeah it was like like that um uh but they all went and there was a beautiful picture of it um what is the secret how does one do that
2: is it are you harnessing the power of your chi or what
0: uh, no, it's you start with one board and then you do two and then you know you you kind of work your way up there's no secret <laughs> to it you hit it really <sighs> hard and it hurts um but yeah I, if I needed to break five boards today, I could do that um, you win I don't know i I don't think I could beat Genevieve in a breaststroke uh, race um, oh you
2: win breaking five again Sarah's gonna hear that and she'll be like, oh you break five boards I love it
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is 6.01, and that means I am already a minute in default of my hard stop commitment to JVL to end on time today. We will be back tomorrow. It will be cheese night a day early, right, Genevieve?
1: That's correct. We're doing it a early tradition.
0: Yeah. So that'll be 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. Jonathan V. Last, you're a great American. Uh, And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Come back and join us sometime. Anytime, thank you for having me guys. It's very, very sweet of you. And until tomorrow, Genevieve.
1: We don't have fun anymore, but we do have a future where we could build a centrist coalition where Sarah Longwell could be president.
0: Whoa. And yes, somebody just shared, Steve uh, Buenapane just shared uh, a picture of the uh, five board break um uh from twitter um we will see you all tomorrow uh thank you